Let's bow our heads and pray together. We've just sung, we shall rise with him in glory to the life that knows no end. Lord, that life has begun uh, for very many of us, and we ask that we may never sell it short as we attend to your word and to the, the stories of those who were selling short the promises of God in Christ. We ask that we may be sharpened in what we believe in our heads in order to be the more effective in the lives that we live. And we ask that for the sake of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Do please find the reading uh, again, if you've uh, closed your uh, Bibles, 11, page 1196. In his uh, first letter to the Corinthian church, St. Paul um, is careful to be very even-handed. He wants to make sure that he's rude to everyone in exactly the same way. So he insults them both, uh, he insults very carefully uh, uh, two groups to make sure that everything's balanced. He says that Jews are always looking for miracles and Greeks are always looking for knowledge. Not, not, uh, it's not accidental that that's the balance that he comes up with. Because those are perhaps the two things that all of us would be looking for if we went shopping in the supermarket of religions. If God has power to display, if God has knowledge to offer, we want some of that for ourselves. And whenever Paul confronts Churches that are in danger of going wrong, it's normally one or the other, desire or both, that's at the heart of it. Both desires are fundamentally self-centered. Power or knowledge for me. And Paul is now writing to Ephesus, where his friend Timothy is, and warning him about what he's hearing. Uh, It all reminds me of me. When I was in the sixth form at school, I was, believe it or not, uh, shorter than I am now. I was never going to uh, climb the pecking order of a boys' school environment by using my intimidating physical presence or superb sporting prowess. So I used what I could, words. I was heading to university to read law. I was quite handy with words. And along with everyone else, I enjoyed laughing at the Christian Union. They all seemed nerdy and weird. And this is the point. It was so easy to demonstrate with words beyond any shadow of a doubt that God could not exist. Well, God is good and saved me from that, and I repent of my treatment of those in the school Christian Union. But that little story from my own background tells me how dangerous words are once they are decoupled from connection to the one who was the word from the beginning. It's possible to enjoy debating, tussling with words, 
keeping everything about the head, just like I did, as an oh-so-pleased-with-myself sixth former, rather than dealing with the heart and the will and life. And that kind of character is where Paul starts in chapter 2 and verse 14. He's just covered the few very deep truths of the Christian faith. If you like, the things that really matter. Remind them, he says in verse 14, remind them in Ephesus, Timothy, of these things. And warn them against fighting with words. A, it's useless, doesn't go anywhere. And B, it actually does real damage. It focuses on the things that don't matter, so as to neglect the things that do matter, and it can lead only one way to ruin. No, on the contrary. Present yourself to God. Nigel's already highlighted that verse. So let's get some perspective. When you're fighting about words, it's about you, your cleverness, your knowledge, your power. No, 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 says Paul. Present yourself not to yourself, but to God. And do so for his approval. And then again, we get the language, if you've been with us in this series, of uh, ashamed and unashamed. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. You belong to God through the gospel of truth. Now that's going to bring suffering with it. Paul is writing from prison, remember. And you could perhaps be ashamed of a gospel that seems to end up with someone in prison. You could be ashamed of it, you could be ashamed of me, especially if the cool and trendy thing to do in Ephesus is to be successful in religion. But you, Timothy, just remember the kind of calling that's laid on you. You are simply to be a good, honest workman, and you don't need to be ashamed. Your work is correctly to handle the word of truth, dividing it carefully. Tell them it's about this. It's not about this, it's about this. Draw that line so that they understand the simple truths of the gospel. Accept the sheer goodness of that plain and simple work. Don't start to fight the false teachers on their own ground and try to get all clever with fancy words and arguments. Just preach and teach the clear, plain truth. Jesus died, you and your sins died with him, so you will live eternally. Those are the the truths that are outlined just before we start in verses 11 to 13. That's what to stick to. Jesus died, you and your sins died with him, so you will live eternally. Do not go in for godless chatter, verse 16, wittering conversation that may make you feel good about yourself, but it's not your calling. Don't go onto their ground. Don't let, they will win, because they're probably cleverer than you are, Timothy. So don't, don't go there. If it's godless, it's not about God. It's about you, fundamentally. So it's not surprising if it has no power to, to halt the human slide, the natural human slide, towards ungodliness. And there's actually a play on words there in verse 16. 
Those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. That more and more is simply uh, uh, as though Paul's saying, um, these false teachers, they want to advance and to to progress. Uh, They are going to progress. But the only thing they're going to progress in is being progressively more ungodly. Teaching like that ends up poisoning the whole system like gangrene does, a blood disease. It's wretched and it's ruinous. That's the... uh, And so far we've kind of... We feel we've been put on hold. He's telling us that something really serious is going on. Hasn't really told us what it is, but now he's going to go on to tell us what it is. Because he's going to name... Uh, individuals of Philetus, in verse 17, we know nothing at all, except this mention. But Hymenaeus was mentioned in the first letter to Timothy. It's not entirely clear, but it looks from that mention in 1 Timothy as if he was involved in saying, we don't need to strive in the Christian life. Well, we'll come back to that, but Hymenaeus and Philetus have wandered from the truth, and in this way, we now discover, according to verse uh, 18, they say that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, what's that about? They'd somehow come to believe that not only was Jesus raised, but the resurrection of believers has also taken place. And if we put that together with what we learned from 1 Timothy and about Hymenaeus there, we know that the the church was getting kind of curious about practices that that were around abstaining from from, uh, sex in marriage and uh, from certain foods. They were trying to live a spiritual life because Jesus was raised, they were raised, the life of the Spirit was uh, the life they were living. They were trying to live a spiritual life but also then having, of course, to come to terms with the fact that they had bodies, so what were they going to do with them? Well, they, kept make, they made up rules around sex, in marriage, and uh, around food. And perhaps that's why Paul focused on resurrection before we, he got to our passage tonight. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Jesus is raised. Get that into your heads. Then verse 11 if we died with him, we, also, we will also live with him. In the past, Jesus was raised. In the future, verse 11, we will also live with him. There's a past and there's a future. Don't get them confused. Now, of course, think what happens if you start paying attention to the idea that the resurrection has happened. If resurrection is the goal to which the Christian life is pointing, then if resurrection has happened, you and I have reached the goal. This life we are living is as good as it gets. There's a happy thought. And if this is as good as it gets, it's not surprising that according to verse 18, the faith of some was being destroyed. Wouldn't your faith be destroyed if you thought this was as good as it gets? Now, the response from Paul to this false teaching is twofold, 
and I think it's rather surprising. Uh, You would think he might say, Timothy, you've got false teachers to deal with. Get out there and fight your corner. But he doesn't. He, He deals with it just like before when he said, don't deal with quarrelers by quarreling. Warn them. Yes, verse 14, you have authority. Remember that. You don't have to get involved in in, in debate. Just warn them. But don't quarrel. Instead, just get on with the the basic, plain business of preaching the truth. So the first part of the response of what he's supposed to do is simply have confidence in God. I think that's an amazing, amazingly confident thing for Paul to say to Timothy. Don't go by appearances. You know you're in the truth. And God has sealed that truth to you. Verse 19. And Paul reaches now, way back, into the story of the people of God, back into Numbers 16, when Moses and Aaron uh, were having uh, a problem. They'd explained uh, to the people, uh, to the tribes, who was going to get to offer sacrifices. And uh, a guy called Korah and his family were upset that they weren't going to be among the tribe that was offering the sacrifices. And they started to question the authority of Moses and Aaron. And God says there's a terrible judgment coming. He says there's judgment coming, but he says to Moses and Aaron, who are facing the real stress of the whole thing falling apart, he says to them, don't worry about it. I know who are mine and whom I've chosen. Paul says here. Don't get paranoid or neurotic about it, Timothy. Don't panic. As uh, um, Clive Clive Jones, was that the right name? Dunn, Dunn, that's right, uh, who died recently, was famous for saying, don't panic. This is dangerous stuff. But don't forget that God is sovereign. The Lord knows who are his. And the second part of the response also picks up on that passage or that story in Numbers 16. When there was the temptation to join with uh, Korah and his tribe, the people had to choose. Are you going to go with Moses and Aaron or are you going to go with Korah? And God said to them, you have to choose. I'm going to make you choose. And I'm going to tell you to turn away from the wickedness that's going on among you. Separate yourselves from it. And that's actually what did it did. The people actually physically had to, to move away so that when the judgment fell, it fell only on Korah. Don't get sucked into quarreling, Timothy. Instead, simply turn away yourself and separate yourself from the quarrelers and get everyone else to do the same. So in this context, in this context, the wickedness that they're to turn away from isn't their own internal wickedness. It's the wickedness of others who are being tolerated among them. And and God is saying through Paul to Timothy, separate, turn away. Well, now, there's the passage, and I haven't covered every word of it, and that's for a reason, because I want to try and put it together and work out what we're supposed to do with it. Because if I asked you, if I'd taken a quiz or something when you came in, 
to name the problems that confront us today in the Church of God or the Church of England or even Holy Trinity, I very much doubt if you would have said to me, do you know, the real problem we've got is quarrelling and the conviction, strange conviction, that the resurrection has taken place. That's the root of all our problems, Alan. I doubt you would have said that to me. It's all long ago and far away. So what do we do with this? Well, we may not have people proclaiming that the resurrection has taken place. But we may get somewhere if we think, what would have made them do that then, even way back then, and see what might happen today? Now, I'm I'm preaching next week on the, the passage that follows, so I've got to be slightly careful. I don't want to trespass. But let's try this. Go back to verse 11 a moment. There's the promise that we will live with Christ who died. Verse 12, even better, we will reign with him. Now, if he died and was raised in the past, and we will live and reign with him in the future, what can we learn about the bit between? Well, the answer from verse 12 is that we endure. Life is going to be tough and to demand endurance from us. In verse 13, it's going to demand keeping faith from us in the midst of great challenges. Well, who would actively like to choose that? Stand at a street corner, Hyde Park corner or whatever it may be, or gentleman's walk in Norwich, and say, uh, Jesus died and you can reign with him, but now you are called to endure. You probably won't get a lot of people responding and saying, I'll sign up for that. Wouldn't all of us like to turn that toughness, that endurance, into softness and ease? Turn that challenge into comfort? Well, what better way to do it than the way they chose uh, with the kind of vocabulary they had. What better way to do it than to argue that the resurrection's already happened, that the period of toughness and challenge is behind us now. We are enduring. We are to keep faith. This period now between the past and the future is the time in which we are being trained into the character of Jesus Christ for God's glory. And these false teachers were turning the great moral demands from God's spirit for change, because the resurrection hasn't happened, into little house rules for the church, because the resurrection had come, according to them. Well, let's have some food laws. Let's abstain from sex in marriage. And let's have lots of um, songs giving thanks that the resurrection has happened. What a dreadfully dull picture it would be of resurrection life. Fancy uh, food laws, probably vegetarianism and no sex. I don't want to make too much of an equation between those two. Um, but if we try to map 
these words onto our situation. I can imagine two scenarios then. I'm kind of wrapping up, beginning to wrap up now. I can imagine two scenarios against which Paul would be warning us, but based on the experience that Timothy was going through in Ephesus. And they'd be these first. We probably don't have people saying the resurrection's happened, but we do still have people saying, do you know, life with Jesus is just absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, that life with Jesus, life of the Spirit maybe, is so wonderful that all challenges and conflicts are resolved and behind us. Now, there are churches that uh, uh, go in for that kind of teaching. And really what I'm having a go at is those Christians uh, with slightly fixed smiles who cannot cope with reality as we know it the people who leave sick and disabled people feeling that it's their fault if they stay sick because we can't have anything interfering with the notion that everything's supposed to be good and right and and, and joyful now. Because, they would say, in the period of the Spirit, all sickness is to be healed. They're the people that pretend that life isn't actually as dreadful as it is for millions including millions of believers. They're those who have to pretend that the the darkness is wholly behind us and that the light at the end of the tunnel has arrived when it hasn't. We cannot know why some are healed and some are not, why some experience hardship in faith and others know nothing but joy, why some uh, preachers of the gospel uh, uh, run huge successful churches while others, like Paul, are put in prison. We don't know why. But we will encounter some Christians, sometime in our life, who are just so convinced that it's all wonderful now, that they cannot cope with reality. And we need to be careful. Occasionally, you encounter whole churches like that. Secondly, in these scenarios that I think Paul would say to us, but using the kind of approach he takes to Timothy. If everything is great, then we need make no effort. Now, you and I have heard this word of truth. You and I have heard that the truth is about God's grace. As St. Paul himself tells us, that it was when we were still sinners that Jesus came and died for us. He didn't wait for us to get, uh, to get good. He came and did what he did when we were still sinners. That's what grace is about. And we've heard that truth. And we can slide, some people have over the generations slid, into saying, okay, well, that means that God has done everything and nothing is laid upon me. But note those little words in verse 15. This is what I meant by saying I haven't uncovered every word in this passage. Look at those words in verse 15. How many of you have been a cub, uh, scout, guide, or brownie? Oh, lots. So quite a lot of you ought to recognize something in verse 15. Do your best. Work hard. Now, at that point, a little 
orange light ought to be going on in some minds. Is Paul saying that if you work hard, God will approve you? You're right, Paul, he isn't. Paul's sitting there going, no, Alan. He's not saying that. Work hard, yes. But read what it says. It doesn't say, do your best to be approved. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one who is already approved because of the grace that has met you. You are approved. Now, work really hard to present yourself to enter into the verdict that God has already made on you. Precisely because grace has met you, you have the energy to apply yourself, in this case to teaching, because you are free of the anxiety, is what I do going to be good enough for God? It probably isn't, so I'm not going to try. So yes, work hard. Do your best. Not out of conviction that and then God will like you, but because God does like you, you can then work hard. Your, your work has meaning and purpose and you know it counts for eternity. And that's what they weren't doing. They were slacking. Easy does it. All the tough stuff's behind us. Resurrection's happened and every little thing's going to be all right. Grace is the truth of the gospel. But once we appreciate grace, we strive to offer all of our lives into the cause of grace. And for Timothy, that meant doing as best he could with the calling of teaching that was laid upon him. We're going to spend more time on this next week uh, with the passage that follows, especially on the kind of things that we are to work on. But for now, let's just stay as far as Paul has got us. Timothy, stay with the plain, simple teaching of the truth of Jesus. Just avoid and teach your people to avoid the wickedness that pretends this life is easy, that pretends this life isn't a struggle, and don't get sucked into a life that claims to be easy but actually just ends up with people quarrelling, tetchy, concerned to get power and knowledge for themselves. Timothy, enter into the hard work and delight of presenting yourself, your whole self, all that you are, every fibre of your being, to God, because that's what matters. Let's pray together. Lord, this passage breathes both great danger but also great confidence. Forgive us when we've seen danger and lacked that confidence. Renew, refresh our confidence in the simple, basic truths of Jesus' death, resurrection, and of a future 
of living with him in glory, in a life that knows no end. Confident of those truths make us disciplined in resisting the temptations to get sucked into unhelpful argument and discussion and help us to give all our effort not to that kind of uh, wasteful activity but simply to doing our utmost with the calling that you have laid upon each one of us whatever that may be because we so want our lives to bring glory to the name of that Jesus, with whom we shall spend eternity. Amen.